Everything was getting worse. The Jewish insurrection against the British had been ramping up, with the Irgun and the Lehi intensifying their attacks. At the same time, the Zionists had been fighting amongst themselves in what amounted to a minor civil war. The Haganah and the Irgun in particular were at loggerheads throughout much of the 1940s, culminating in the hunting season from last week's episode. But the war's end brought some clarity. The British hadn't lifted the White Paper's restrictions on immigration, even though the war was over. And so David Ben-Gurion had realized what Menachem Begin had long been saying. The Jews had to unite in their resistance to the British. We're getting to the start of the final push that will bring about an end to the British mandate, the partition of Palestine, and at long last, the creation of a Jewish state. So much drama. Welcome to the 51st episode of Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. The Jewish or Hebrew resistance movement, as it was called, was formed by the Haganah, Irgun, and Lehi in October of 1945. The goal was to work together to carry out sabotage operations against the British mandate in Palestine. The Yishuv, the Jewish community in Palestine, they were pretty pissed. And who can blame them? World War II had ended back in May. Not only had the Jewish people lost six million of their number to the most cruel forms of torture, murder, and destruction in their history, but the Jews of Palestine in particular had fought for and with the British throughout the war. And yet with hundreds of thousands of shocked Holocaust survivors crowded into displaced persons camps in Europe, desperate to find a place to go, the British kept Palestine closed. Despite everything that had happened in the last six years, British immigration policy was still mostly living in 1939 with the White Paper. The Jews blamed Britain for contributing to the Holocaust by refusing to allow Jews to be brought to Palestine. But now, it was simply unconscionable that the doors of Palestine were still shut. For the first time, the various Jewish defense organizations were united in believing that there was only one way forward. Their logic was clear. To have an open immigration policy to bring in the Holocaust survivors, the Jews needed to be the majority so they could have the power to make their own decisions. The only way to be in the majority was to have a Jewish state. The only way to have a Jewish state was for the British mandate to end. And the only way to end the mandate was to force the British out. Back in 1942, at the Biltmore Hotel on Madison Avenue in New York, David Ben-Gurion had proclaimed for the first time that the Zionist movement was now explicitly dedicated to the creation of a Jewish state in Palestine, in which Jews would be in the majority. It was no longer acceptable to simply have a Jewish homeland under the sufferance of either a foreign colonial power or the Arabs. And with the war over, the Jews no longer had to worry about harming Britain's war effort. They finally had the space to be much more aggressive and focused. Their purpose was now singular. Bleed the British until they get out. The Hebrew resistance movement kicked off its unified campaign on the night of November 1st, 1945. The operation came to be called the Night of the Trains. At 11 p.m., Palmach fighters simultaneously sabotaged rail lines all across Palestine. 
blowing up tracks, destroying communications, and wrecking Britain's ability to effectively move troops and police around the country. They also sank several boats in Haifa, whose function was to intercept Haganah ships carrying illegal immigrants. No one on either side was hurt in the attack. A bit later that evening, the Irgun attacked a central train station, destroying several trains. Two British, four Arabs, and one Irgun fighter were killed. At the same time, the Lehi attacked an oil refinery in Haifa. One fighter was killed, and the refinery was heavily damaged. The Night of the Trains was a huge morale boost for the Jews, and it proved that they could work together even when they disagreed with each other's politics, ideology, and strategy. Ben-Gurion, as head of the Jewish agency, had to officially condemn the attacks, but in private he was pretty stoked. So the British were left with two big problems. They weren't sure how to respond to Jewish violence in a way that would be effective. That is, placating the Jews and getting them to stop while also not giving up, doing anything for them. The British were weak. They had nowhere near the fighting strength that they would need to wage battle against the Jewish defense groups, let alone to try to seize all their hidden weapons, which was often discussed. The second problem was that Jewish violence was, unsurprisingly, infuriating those British police, soldiers, and officials who were in Palestine. They had long hated the Irgun and the Lehi, but that hostility was now spreading to encompass all the Jews. The author, Bruce Hoffman, quotes one British officer saying, I'm not for the Jews or against them, but I can't help feeling that Hitler was on the right lines. Anti-Semitism rose ever more publicly, which in turn increased the anger of the Jews towards the British. All the bad blood circulating around Palestine was getting worse. All this begs the question, well, why didn't the British just repeal the white paper anyway? It's harsh to say this, but there was no longer the danger of millions of Jews suddenly flooding Palestine. They'd all just been murdered. At best, the Yishuv could have brought in a few hundred thousand more survivors. The world had changed remarkably in the six years of war. There was a groundswell of public support for the creation of a Jewish homeland, and a new British government had come to power. The Labour Party defeated the Tories in a landslide election, and Clement Attlee replaced Winston Churchill as Prime Minister. Labour had long supported the Zionist cause, opposed the White Paper, and looked favorably on the creation of a Jewish national home with a Jewish majority, both before the war and now even more so after the Nazis. But the reason why they didn't is because, as the British Empire began crumbling all over the world following the war, their Palestinian colony became ever more strategic, meaning that keeping the Arabs friendly and supportive, or at least quiet, was of paramount importance. The British calculus hadn't been changed by the war, they still thought it was better to piss off the Jews than the Arabs. Why? Because oil! The British had built a huge infrastructure network to access the Middle East's oil wealth, which, as we know, the Arabs controlled. The British, economically and financially devastated by the war, they absolutely had to have this oil or, quite seriously, be looking at national collapse. So they weren't about to anger the Arabs by opening Palestine up to more Jewish immigration or to entertain the idea of partitioning Palestine into Jewish and Arab states, which the Arabs had repeatedly rejected. And anyway, a lot of this oil infrastructure was located in and around Haifa, since that was now Britain's key Middle Eastern port. And in addition to the oil economics, there was the matter of declining British influence, the rise of the Soviet Union, and the beginnings of what became the Cold War and the struggle for who would call the shots in various parts of the world. The Soviets were making moves at building friendly relations with key players in the Middle East, 
And by the way, that includes the Jews in Palestine, which I'll get to another time. The British had to parry the Soviet Union's moves to both preserve national pride and prestige and to make sure that the Arabs didn't cut off the British to instead sell that oil to the Soviets. The point being, geopolitics is the reason why Britain was holding fast to the white paper. And so the goal of the Hebrew resistance movement was to make it abundantly clear to the British that, no, actually, it wasn't better to piss off the Jews and the Arabs. In fact, it would be ruinously costly to continue pissing off the Jews. The Yeshuv knew that the British had a huge weakness right now. Nearly bankrupt by the war, they didn't have the money to send a massive deployment of troops to Palestine to put down a rebellion. If the Jews could keep this up, they would force the British to give in. They didn't even need to kill gazillions of British, they just had to make keeping the peace super duper expensive. And pretty much, that's exactly what happened. But you know, if only it were that easy. Hebrew resistance movement struck again in an operation dubbed Night of the Bridges. For months, the Haganah and Palmach meticulously planned a major operation to destroy most of the bridges connecting Palestine to the outside world, Lebanon, Syria, Transjordan, and Egypt. They struck on June 16, 1947, knocking out 10 bridges and almost completely preventing the British army from moving its forces around the region. The Haganah and the Palmach lost about 14 fighters, and several more were wounded. The British had one soldier killed. Like other attacks, the targets were intended to convey a message. If Jews aren't allowed into Palestine, then no one else is either. The symbolism wasn't lost on anyone. The operation once again proved the strength and abilities of the Jewish fighting forces, boosting morale in the Yishuv. The British got yet another hard lesson in how difficult it would be to keep Jewish resistance in check without ditching the white paper, which also had the effect of hurting their side's morale. And it was also a warning to anyone else who may, in the future, think about invading Palestine. Look how quickly we can cut you off. Although some of the bridges were repaired within weeks, a few others were left as is, and you can still see their ruins around Israel. The Night of the Bridges also finally provoked a massive reaction from the British, which had been building for months now, even years. Every time the Jews struck the British, the British debated over how to respond, but they always stopped short of taking dramatic action. But now they were fed up. They decided to go after the Haganah, Palmach, Irgun, and Lehi in one fell swoop. They called it Operation Agatha. The Jews called it Black Sabbath. Okay, I realize that the band Black Sabbath has nothing really to do with Zionism, but come on. I told you this was going to be the fun, dramatic part of Israeli history. Anyway, back to our story. So everyone in the neighborhood liked Rabbi Sassover and his kind wife and cute toddler. He was frequently out walking the side streets around his modest apartment in Tel Aviv, dressed in black with a dignified hat and the pious beard that was the uniform of an Orthodox rabbi. He was quiet, unassuming, friendly, mostly kept to himself. But what his neighbors probably didn't realize, or maybe they did, was that his name wasn't Rabbi Sassover, and he wasn't even a rabbi. He was Menachem Begin, head of the Irgun, the most wanted man in Palestine, whom the British kept getting close to but never quite seemed to grab. 
they only had two old photos of him. So once he grew a beard and changed his basic appearance, he could live more or less out in the open while hiding from a huge bounty on his head. He remained in hiding until Israel was established in 1948. On Saturday afternoon, June 29, 1946, two weeks after the Night of the Bridges, the British basically shut down Palestine in a surprise raid, slamming a blockade around the main Jewish cities and dozens of kibbutzim. They were determined to permanently crush the Jewish resistance by arresting its fighters and seizing all their hidden weapons caches. They were also looking for intelligence evidence that the Jewish agency, led by Ben-Gurion, was in cahoots with the Haganah, and that the Haganah, Irgun, and Lehi were all working together on terrorist operations. I mean, they were, duh, but in public they never admitted it, hence the need for proof. The anti-Semitism and anger that had been building amongst the British police came out in full force. There were numerous accounts of British soldiers getting physical with the Jews, dragging them around while screaming, Hitler didn't finish the job! The Jews responded with force of their own, insulting the British soldiers with shouts of Gestapo. Within a couple of days, Operation Agatha, or Black Sabbath, as the Jews called it, had arrested more than 2,700 Jewish fighters and a slew of senior commanders, especially of the Irgun. But they missed Rabbi Sassover. Various rumors suggest that the British tracked down Begin and searched his home, but missed him hiding in a secret crawl space. Ben-Gurion was outside Palestine at the time, so he too escaped arrest. Actually, this is a good side story. Ben-Gurion was in Paris, meeting with the French government, who were covertly supplying intelligence to the Jewish agency and the Haganah in an effort to thwart the British and the Arabs in the Middle East. In 1966, Ben-Gurion revealed that he had been staying in the same hotel as another up-and-coming revolutionary. The legend has it that the two found themselves in an elevator together, during which this other revolutionary offered up his country as a place for a future Jewish homeland. Much appreciated, Ben-Gurion said to Ho Chi Minh, but we'll need to pass. Operation Agatha seized nine tons of documents, including all the necessary evidence that the British needed to prove collusion. And the British got a huge haul of weapons, especially from the Haganah, Piles of guns, ammunition, grenades, and explosives that the Haganah were saving for a future rainy day when a Jewish state would have to defend itself against the Arabs. Operation Agatha was successful in many ways and delivered a huge blow to the Jewish self-defense organizations. But they didn't get everyone. And they didn't get everything. And those that were left made it very clear where they now stood. We've been fighting a resistance these past couple of years, they said. But now the British have declared war on us and so a war is what they'll get. And the first thing they needed to do was retaliate for Black Sabbath. Back when things were relatively calm following the 1921 riots that I talked about in episode 40, the British built a magnificent hotel overlooking the old city of Jerusalem. It was Palestine's glitzy palace for the rich, powerful, beautiful, diplomatic, and those inclined towards espionage, to sleep, dine, and party, and where later on, presidents and prime ministers and European royalty stayed when visiting Israel. It was the Waldorf Astoria of Palestine. The cheapest rooms are running $600 a night this weekend, and that's without a nice view. And plus there's the pool. 
I like to drive by it on the birthright bus and contemplate what my life could be like as a member of the Haganah aristocracy. But by the 1940s, the British had turned one wing of the King David Hotel, the Southern Wing, into its military and administrative headquarters, the Pentagon of the British Mandate. Menachem Begin had been wanting to attack it for a while now, but the Haganah always said no. But after Black Sabbath, even Ben-Gurion was pissed off enough to allow it. Plus, there has long been the notion that the British took all the documents they seized to the King David, so destroying the hotel would conveniently get rid of all that intelligence, too. Though this was probably more icing on the cake than the actual reason. So a joint plan with the Haganah, Irgun, and Lehi was made to bomb the hotel with hundreds of pounds of explosives placed on a timer, to allow time for the British to evacuate the place. But then my birthday buddy, Chaim Weitzman, got wind of the operation. Weitzman had been fairly well on the outs of late. He was getting old and his health wasn't great, and as we've seen these last several years, his emphasis on moderation and cooperation with the British hadn't done a thing for the Yeshuv. He wasn't a wartime consigliere like Ben-Gurion or Begin, so even though he was still the head of the official Zionist movement, his influence just wasn't what it used to be. Also, his son had joined the Royal Air Force when World War II began and was shot down and killed in 1942, a tragedy from which Weitzman never completely recovered. But he still retained enough clout to put his foot down on certain matters, and one of them was terrorism, and especially retaliation for Operation Agatha. He had no problem with the Haganah continuing their in illegal immigration operations, but he refused to countenance the bombing of the King David, and also demanded that the Haganah stop working with the Irgun and the Lehi. He was successful. The Haganah pulled out and instructed Begin not to go through with it. The Lehi also pulled out, too weakened to effectively carry out an operation of this magnitude. But Begin was determined to see it through. At about 12.30 in the afternoon of July 22, 1946, a 16-year-old member of the Irgun, Adina Haynissan, called the King David switchboard from a payphone down the street. This is the Jewish resistance movement, she said. We have planted bombs in the hotel. Please vacate it immediately. You have been warned. The Irgun, as we've established, was a big fan of dramatic terrorist attacks, but not a big fan of killing lots of people. They often called in their own bomb threats ahead of time or struck at night to prevent casualties. They had a two-part plan to minimize casualties this time around, too. First, they would set off a small bomb directly across the street from the hotel to scare everyone on the street into running away. Second, Adina would make her call to the King David, giving everyone a half hour or so to evacuate the hotel, which was plenty of time. It was a good plan, as far as things go, but right away it started to go wrong. Irgun intelligence planning had revealed that the British brought milk into the hotel through large canisters delivered by truck to the basement level. The Irgun stole a truck, loaded it up with seven milk canisters filled instead with 800 pounds of explosives, dressed up like Arabs, and drove down into the basement. They went about setting up the various bombs, but their intel had missed the fact that there was a small office down there manned by British soldiers. One of them came over to see what was going on. Panic ensued. The Irgun opened fire and all hell broke loose. A gun battle raged as British soldiers and police rushed to the gunshots, and the Irgun squad fought their way out of the hotel as alarms banged all over the building. And that's when the Irgun's bomb across the street went off. 
but it was more powerful than they had intended. It didn't kill anyone, but several people were injured, and the British put the city on lockdown, thinking that that bomb was the main terrorist attack, and the Irgun shooting up the King David was just a distraction. So security turned around and began racing across the street. Within a few minutes, they had cleared the situation, the Irgun terrorists had melted away, and everyone calmed down. The British figured that the emergency was over, and for about six minutes, all was quiet. And then, at 12.37 p.m., boom. For whatever reason, the bombs went off earlier than they were supposed to. Menachem Begin maintained for the rest of his life that adequate warning was given, but that the British chose to ignore it. So therefore, this was actually all their fault. But whether the timer had malfunctioned, or an Irgun operative purposely set them earlier, or Begin himself ordered them to go off before the hotel could be evacuated, we don't know for sure. What is known for certain is that the King David was not evacuated. The warning never reached the ranking commander. Possibly because the hotel had received threats before, and nothing had ever happened. More likely it was because of all the confusion happening out in the streets, and word about the basement firefight hadn't percolated up the chain of command yet. The explosion decimated the entire southwestern wing of the hotel. You can easily find pictures of the aftermath online. 91 people were killed. 41 Arabs, 28 British, 17 Jews, 2 Armenians, and 1 Russian, Egyptian, and Greek. Most were civilians, but several high-ranking officers were among the dead. It was the single worst terrorist attack in modern Middle Eastern history. It would not be surpassed until Arab terrorists bombed the U.S. Marines barracks in Beirut in 1983. Begin was shocked and upset, continuing to argue that the Irgun had tried to avoid casualties. They set off that first bomb and put timers on their King David bomb precisely because they wanted to get everyone out of the hotel and far away. And I think there's probably a lot of truth to that. That had been their MO since Begin had been in charge these last few years. The Irgun was consistent in avoiding huge casualties. And if there's one thing Begin was always consistent about, it was that the Irgun was never allowed to attack a fellow Jew. It's hard to believe he set a bomb knowing that Jews would be killed. But on the other hand, he kept trying to blame the British for the 91 deaths, insisting that they had either ignored the warning or purposely refused to evacuate, which is all just ridiculous. This was the Irgun's responsibility through and through, and the rest of the issue was no less outraged than the British. Ben-Gurion, and even more so Chaim Weizmann, were livid. The Haganah knew about the attack and had been involved in planning it, but remember, had pulled out beforehand and told the Irgun not to do it. Weizmann and Ben-Gurion demanded that everyone stand down, that the Haganah, Yirgun, and Lehi stop all operations against the British. The Haganah agreed, but the Irgun and the Lehi announced that they would keep at it. And so the Hebrew resistance movement broke up in the summer of 1946. Just like during the hunting season the year before, Ben-Gurion encouraged Jews to turn over Irgun fighters to the British police and continued condemning the Lehi and the Irgun as terrorist thugs. Yet if the goal of the King David Hotel bombing was to force the British to rethink their whole presence in Palestine, and that was the goal, it worked. 
For a while now, the British had been dabbling with ideas about what to do with the British mandate, about whether there was a way to extricate themselves from Palestine and how that would look in terms of creating a Jewish or an Arab state there. But the Jewish insurrection was having a huge impact. The British were getting more and more exasperated. The conflict was getting more expensive in blood and treasure. They weren't quite ready to pull out, but the King David gave them a huge shove in that direction. It would not be long now. The British were clearly fading fast, but the fight was not yet over. In fact, the Jewish resistance seemed to intensify. They were hot on the goal of breaking British willpower. A dramatic prison break and a profound moral dilemma would finally push Britain at long last over the edge. I know I'm supposed to end the episode here with some kind of dramatic Jewish music, but come on. Black Sabbath, I can't resist. So lehitraot. See you later. <laughs>